Welcome to the New Books Network. In the future restoration of Israel, a wide range of scholars write on the question of the promises of God to Israel. These essays put forward the position that unconditional promises were given to Israel, which had not been fulfilled in the church or any other entity. At the consummation, there will be a continuing role for the Jewish people, realized through their national and territorial hope of a restored, redeemed Israel. Join us as we speak with one of the contributors, Michael Brown, about the future restoration of Israel. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Michael L. Brown holds a Ph.D. in Near Eastern Studies from New York University. He's written a variety of books, including Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, Job, The Faith to Challenge God, and several volumes of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. He has a nationally syndicated radio show, The Line of Fire, and hosts the YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown. Michael, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Oh, it's a joy to be with you, Michael. So, Michael, let's begin by hearing your story. Tell us about yourself. Yes, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. I came to faith in late 1971 at the age of 16. At that point, I was a heroin-shooting, LSD-using, long-haired hippie rock drummer, And even though I was raised in a Jewish home in Bar Mitzvah at 13, we weren't religious Jews. We weren't traditional. So what really impacted me at 13 more than my Bar Mitzvah, which was primarily a social event for me, what impacted me was going to my first rock concert, seeing Jimi Hendrix. And I just wanted to get in that whole scene. Beatles came to America when I was nine, you know, and playing drums and all that. So I just got caught up in that, the rebellion of the era. My two best friends totally nominal Christians, one Russian Orthodox, the other Methodist, but not a Christian ounce in them. We partied, hung out together. They liked two girls in our high school. Their uncle was a pastor. Their dad had been praying for them. So the girls started going to church services. My friends went to hang out with the girls. And the church being Pentecostal was interesting to them because talked about like demons today or prophets, you know, things like that. And pastor taught a lot about the end times. Times, Book of Revelation. So that was fascinating. So little by little, they got drawn in. God started to change them. I went to the church to dissuade them. And then people started praying for me, and the Holy Spirit just began to convict me of my sin, the ugliness of my life. And I got radically born again the end of the year. I just knew, not through argument or presentation of the Messianic prophecy, just God working in my heart. I, I knew Jesus died for me and rose from the dead, and I was resisting God. So I was just transformed overnight, set free from drugs. And then after some time, my dad saw the change in my life. And he said, Michael, I'm glad you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe in this. So he, in turn, brought me to meet the local rabbi, who I was all too happy to meet, to share the gospel with. But I wasn't ready. I mean, here is he was a young man, just about 11 years older than me, fresh out of Jewish theological seminary. But he had been studying Hebrew his whole life and then connected me with other rabbis, traditional rabbis. So... From day one, virtually, I had I had challenges to my faith, and how can you believe this? And that's ultimately why I started learning Hebrew in college, because I said, okay, I, I know Jesus has changed my life, but these are serious objections, and I can't just kind of stick my head in the sand. So I really just began to learn and study and said, I'm going to follow the truth wherever it leads before God. And of course, it just fortified my faith over the years. But interestingly, the very first book this rabbi gave me was a book about anti-Semitism in church history. And initially, Michael, uh, it, it was bad news, but it didn't mean much to me because I didn't get saved in a historic church. Like 
the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church where there was a long history. We just kind of went straight back to the Bible in our church. So I, I kind of discounted church history, but I, I realized over the years you can't. It's something we have to wrestle with and, and deal with. And of course, something that's of interest to me to this day. The book you contributed to, The Future Restoration of Israel, forms a response by a variety of scholars to supersessionism. Would you explain for our listeners what supersessionism is? Yeah, so this is a term that we will use, but the folks that we would differ with often don't like to use it for themselves. They feel it's not nuanced enough or not accurate. But supersessionism comes from the word supersede, the idea that the church has superseded Israel in the promises of God, or that the church has replaced Israel. So that would mean that as you're reading the Old Testament and God gives promises to Israel and what he'll do through Israel and how Israel will be a light to the nations, that the nation failed in its rejection of the Messiah, but the promises to Israel now find their fulfillment through Jesus in the new Israel, which is the church. And although there are many fine Christians who hold to that and who are not in any way anti-Semitic, the fact is in church history, it's undeniable that replacement theology, supersessionism, opened the door to anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, even open persecution of the Jewish people. And that's why many who would hold to it today would refer to it as fulfillment theology or expansion theology, but certainly not replacement because of the bad history of it and feeling it's not sufficiently nuanced. How or perhaps why have you become so passionately involved in the matter of refuting supersessionism? Well, again, when you look at history, the demonizing of the Jews, the horrific things that were done to Jewish people through history in the name of Jesus, um, the, the words of Martin Luther, which many Protestants are not even aware of, but his, his call in 1543 for Jews to be herded together in ghettos, for their rabbis to be forbidden to teach under penalty of death, for their places of business and synagogues to be burned down and destroyed. And then November 9th, 1938, Kristallnacht, which many historians say is the beginning of the Holocaust, for, for the Nazis to do exactly what Luther said, based on his counsel to set synagogues on fire and destroy Jewish places of business. When you, when you connect the dots in history and see how the common element is this idea that the church is the new Israel, or more particularly that God is finished with all the Israel. Individual Jews can be saved, yes, but there are no national promises that remain. It really does work itself out practically. Again, many fine Christians hold to this today, and they are not in any way anti-Semitic. But here's what's fascinating. I do not know a single person who has hostility to the modern state of Israel and, and is so critical of Israel and so pro-Palestinian that it almost demonizes the nation. I don't know a single Christian who holds that position who is not replacement theology. In other words, they do not see Israel today in any way as fulfillment of prophecy. They may say they still see a future salvation for Israel, but it, in other words, it plays out on the ground. Conversely, those who believe that God did bring the Jewish people back to the land as part of his ongoing promises. Yes, Jewish people still need Jesus to be saved. I've devoted my life to that. It's a daily thing I'm involved in for over 50 years on one level or another. But those who recognize that God brought the Jewish people back, even though they're free to criticize Israel and criticize Israeli policies, they recognize that there is a satanic attack to wipe the Jewish people out. And if replacement theology is true, then why is Jesus, Yeshua, coming back to Jerusalem? Why Jerusalem? 
Why is the king returning there? Why will he not return until the Jewish Jerusalem welcomes him back? So it, it plays itself out on the ground. It's therefore not just an abstract theology. And that, that's why it's of concern to me. Now, of course, many would say ecclesia was used in the Septuagint just for kahal, which is Hebrew for the congregation of Israel. So it's, it's always been the people of God, and now the people of God are all those in Jesus. It used to be elect Israel and people like Ruth and others that were grafted in, but now it's just all the elect through Yeshua. But in the end, I just I bottom line it with folks, because I interact with a lot of scholars on this. Like, okay, here's a promise God gave to the physical seed of Israel, that no matter what you do, I, I, you will continue as a nation until the end. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37. Who's that referring to? Or I will scatter you in my wrath and bring you back to the land. Who is it referring to? Is it not the ones that he scattered? So in the end, no matter what people tell me, it's not replacement, it's not supersessionism. In the end, specific promises that God gave to a specific people no longer apply to them. They've been given to someone else. And that really does affect one's worldview. Your contribution to the future restoration of Israel is a chapter on Galatians 3.16 and the seed of Christ. Would you review your work here? Give us basic context for the Apostle Paul's statement, as well as the false deductions you believe others have made from it. Yes, and it's, it's very easy to make the wrong deduction. So, What's Paul dealing with in Galatians? He's dealing with this idea that Gentile followers of Jesus must become circumcised and take on the law of Moses in order to be saved. It's completely different than a Jewish believer continuing to live as a Jew as part of their heritage and history. It's completely different from a Gentile Christian saying, you know, I enjoy the the, the Jewish customs and holidays, and I, I enjoy celebrating them with my Messianic Jewish friends. No, this is saying in order to be saved that you must come under the Sinai covenant. And, and Paul says that's another gospel, and he opposes it with all his might. And he wants them to understand that what matters is being in Jesus, not being Jew or Gentile. And the radical statement he makes in Galatians 3.28, re- repeated almost verbatim in Colossians 3.11, that in Yeshua there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. It's a radical, revolutionary statement that he makes. So that's the point he's drilling home to them. And he makes a polemical argument using a typical rabbinic midrashic technique, which is to hyperinterpret a word. Uh, for example, it, it would be if, if I say, if you want to catch fish, uh, go to this lake. Notice I didn't say fishes, I said fish. So that means there's only one fish you can catch. Well, obviously, that's, that's not what's meant, but, it, but it's a hyperliteral type of interpretation. So, Paul is emphasizing that what matters is being in Christ, in Messiah. And he says in Galatians 3.16 that when God made promises to, to Israel, to Abraham, he didn't say to your seeds, plural, but to your seed, namely Christ, so that all the promises come through Jesus, and the deduction would be there are no promises outside of him. In other words, any promises God gave to Israel now fulfilled through Jesus, who is the, the, the true vine and the, the founder of the new Israel, and Jew and Gentile in Jesus become the new Israel. So there are no national promises that were given to a people that still apply, like I'll keep you even in your unbelief scattered around the world. Those don't want to apply because all the promises are in the one seed in Christ. You say, well, isn't that what he said? Well, here's what's interesting. Number one, the very next verse, 
he says that the law, which comes 430 years after the promise, can't nullify the promise. That's, that's the first thing. So even though God said that he would scatter Israel in disobedience and only regather them with repentance, that can't undo unconditional promises that God gave to, to Abraham uh, about, the, about his seed. That's number one. Number two, Paul uses the, the seed in the plural sense right there in that chapter 329, saying that, that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And elsewhere, for example, Romans 15, he uses it corporately of the, uh, of the children of Israel. More importantly, as I said in the dialogue with an Arab Christian scholar in Bethlehem a few years ago, the point does not work in, in Hebrew. The point does not work in Greek. The point does not work in Arabic. The point does not even work in English. If you translate Zerah, the Hebrew, or Greek sperma, seed, translate it as offspring. There's no such thing as offsprings. It would be as, and, and some translations say that to emphasize the point. Paul's saying, now the promise is made to your offspring, not to your offsprings. Well, there's no such word as offsprings. It would be, like Paul said, it says brethren, not brethrens. Well, the word brethren itself is, 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 uh, is a compound plural. So it's the same with, with sperma. The only time it can mean a singular seed is if you're planting a seed in a garden. But when it's talking about offspring, it could be generic. It could be your one child, or it could be your, your posterity for generations. So the point is that, that Paul is, in a rabbinic way, hyper-literally interpreting this to get a point across that everything comes through Yeshua, and that's what matters. Being in him, Jew or Gentile, is what matters. Not being Jewish, not being Gentile. Your identity is found in him that makes you a child of Abraham. You say, but but hang on. He still says it says seed. Okay, here's the problem. If you go through the Torah, uh, and I and I list verse after verse. In fact, I had even more listed, but it just made the 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 chapter too long. Verse after verse after verse after verse, including God speaking to Abram in Genesis 15 about his Zerah. It is constantly plural. The the Hebrew is plural. They will serve. They will be in a foreign land. They, they, they. The Hebrew is plural. There are scores and scores and scores of verses made to the, to the plural seed of Israel in terms of God's promises to them as a people. They include judgment. They include blessing. Now, does, do any of us think that Paul, with one stroke of his pen, could undo scores and scores and scores of verses and hundreds of other verses built on those where God promises to give the land to the corporate seed? Obviously not. That to me is the, the arrogance, not of people, but of the idea of replacement theology, that somehow the New Testament can now so radically reinterpret the old that it makes void hundreds of statements that God made. And from a Jewish perspective, that would be a reason to reject the New Testament. In other words, if Jesus or Paul came and changed everything and, and made void the law and the prophets, then throw them out. Don't throw out the law and the prophets. So the idea that Paul would now be turning everything upside down is completely unthinkable. Now, it's true that there are promises made to a seed, you know, Isaac and things like that. So Paul's probably playing on that that at times it can be referring to one posterity in particular. So the promises to bless the entire world come through this one particular seed. The whole world is blessed, not just by Jewish people, but by Jesus, the Jew, by Yeshua, the Messiah. 
But the promises made to the seed, plural, either continue or God is a liar, and, and we throw out the Bible. And, and uh, that's why it was so essential to really dig deep, to get into Jewish background, to unpack other commentators, and then to try to put things together in a way that would clearly make this point. Paul, any writer of the New Testament, they were not undoing what came before. They were building on it with proper understanding. Michael, what else are you working on these days in terms of projects or books? So what, what was really special for me was that uh, although I do academic work in general, my specialization like yours is Hebrew Bible, Hebrew language, and I don't get to, to write as much academic work on the New Testament. So it was, it was really enjoyable to do this and to review uh, contemporary New Testament scholarship and older scholarship on, on the issue. So uh, larger projects, I'm, I'm working on a major commentary in the book of Isaiah, but it is temporarily on hold because of a massive project that I can't announce publicly yet. Uh, you certainly know about it. Can't announce it publicly, but it will be the number one educational tool that uh, – I've ever been involved with and helped produce to educate the church in terms of messianic prophecy and God's purposes for Israel, and then to use as a Jewish outreach tool to a Jewish person who is seeking. And we'll contain it in one volume. So it's it's a massive project with many contributors, and I'm working on that day and night. So that is very, very major. Uh, on the On the popular end, my next book is due out in November called Seize the Moment, How to Fuel the Fires of Revival. So this is a popular book about when God begins to move in, in a church, in, in a ministry, how to cultivate what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the next book, which I just finished, I'm doing the proofing and editing now, uh, which is due out in March, uh, will, will be called Turn the Tide, How to Ignite a Cultural Awakening. So as God moves, how can we move from that into impacting the culture with the gospel and with the tools God's given us. And then the book that I'll start immediately after that to come out in the fall of next year is basically how I approach the culture wars, hearts of compassion, backbones of steel, bringing grace and truth together. So the spirit of it and then practical guidelines. So those are, those are projects I'm working on. And then normally I write uh, four or five op-eds every week uh, dealing with uh, with key issues in the culture, the world around us, so that we provide tools, a blueprint for others to to work with. Uh, we'll deal with anti issues about anti-Semitism in contemporary Israel as well. And then always involved in, in Jewish outreach. So we're producing a series of videos rebutting probably the most aggressive counter-missionary rabbi on the internet, who for many years has turned his attention from just dealing with Jews who believe in Jesus, but attacking Christians. So we have a, a series, probably about 11 or 12 of those videos out so far, but we try to get in depth and really demolish the misinformation. So we continue to, to, to produce those videos as well. So those are, those are some of the things we're, uh, we're involved in these days and uh, never a dull moment. Michael, it's been a delight having you on the show. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, thank you for what you do as, as I have had the pleasure of reading some of your work uh, in, in the last year plus. I have really enjoyed your scholarship and your, your method of thinking. So 
your listeners do well to tune into your show. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.